Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm Patrick, and I am today joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Robin Bunce, who's a historian of political ideas, and I'll let him explain exactly what that means. But um, a little bit of background on how I got to know Dr. Bunce was, uh, he had an article published about a month ago on the New Statesman that talked about how some of the ideas, especially um, in regards to politics and the collapse of ecosystems and things um, in Blade Runner 2049 mirrored some of the things that we're experiencing in our own society. So I sent him an email and I was like, uh, hey, you know, this is a great piece. Can we get you on the show? And he was terrific. And he decided to come on. So without further ado, um, I would like to introduce Dr. Bunce. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's very good to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Of course. So so you're a historian of political ideas. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of exactly um, what that entails? Ooh, good to be. Yes. Um, Sometimes we're called intellectual historians, um, but that kind of, you know, has a double meaning. So I prefer the phrase historian of ideas. Um, essentially, what I do is I trace the roots of ideas. So, I mean, people tend to think that ideas um, are kind of natural and that perhaps all societies have always had the same kinds of ideas. In reality, that's not true. And there are so ideas have genealogies and ideas have kind of roots. And there are some ideas that we have today that, you know, would have been unthinkable in the 17th century or, or earlier. Like, um, like so, what's an example of, of an idea like that? Um, an idea that I think is, is really interesting is the idea of a role. Okay, so, I mean, this is something that we use all the time, a role. Um, but really, that emerges in the, um, it emerges from France in the early modern period as something which describes the something an actor plays. And mm. then in the 1960s, it gets a kind of twist about, um, it gets a twist that gets linked to sociology. So the modern idea we have of this idea of role is something, is something that, you know, was essentially unthinkable. We certainly wouldn't have had a word for it um, much right, before, right, you right. know, 1600. That's, that's so fascinating. <laughs> what, what, an, what an amazing job title. I love that. That's, that's, that's really, really cool. It's, it's a good day job, yeah. It is, yeah. Would you do us a quick favor? When we have people on, we like to sort of get an idea of what their personal relationship uh, with, with Blade mm. Runner is. So, so how were you introduced to it? What, how does it fit into your life? Um, give, give us a little bit of an insight into that. One more kiss, It's absolutely, I mean, the original is my absolutely favorite film. Of all time. Um, it's it's of, absolutely of all time. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, it's 
it's I love the cinematography. I love the music. The music is just stunning. Yes, yes. Um, so I first encountered it, I think, probably in about 1987 or something on VHS. Okay. Um, my my dad did. My dad's a big science fiction fan and a big influence on me. And he, I think, he was away from home and they were playing in an arts picture house. So he just rocked up and saw it, and you know, he blew him away. And so he he came back with the VHS. Um, and then I started watching it and. There was a lot of other kind of Blade Runner-y stuff around, um, you know, lots of rip-offs of Blade Runner around that I'd seen. And when I first saw it, I, you know, I, the thing that hit me was the music. Yeah. Um, and then over time, I kind of grew to appreciate what was going on in the film and read the, you know, obviously read the book. Um, so when I had a daughter back in 2003, the end point of my parenting journey was when she was 15 and I was thinking, yeah, okay, when she's 15, I'll show her Blade Runner in a movie's theatre. <laughs> and then I would have given her everything. You know, right, everything right, and that's it. What more can you do after that? I know, right. exactly. That's it, the pinnacle of parenting. That is, So yeah. actually, so yeah, so um, she saw it this year. She saw this um, cinematic version this year mm. and she saw um, the sequel this year as well and she loved both of them. Oh man, so that's I so thought, cool. I know. I thought I've done a good job as a parent. I can relax now. Had you set it up for that for her at all? Like, had you given her background on it, or, or was this completely just a new experience? Um, we have only one rule in our house, okay. um, and that is that you can't watch Blade Runner. Okay, because <laughs> I didn't want her to see it on a tiny little television or right, a laptop. Right, right, right. You know, I think it's the kind of thing you need to see for the first time on a massive screen. I know. Um, I agree. So yeah, so that, it was kind of this thing that she couldn't do until she was ready. Mm. Um, so there you are. So I guess that's how I set up for her. And I, obviously, I told her it was the best film ever made, <laughs> which is, it sets the expectations, yeah. you know, very low for for how exactly. it's going to be. Yeah. But she liked it. That's great. So, so what are your thoughts yeah. on 2049? You, you've seen it. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording six times, which is the same yes. as I've seen it. So it's it's nice to know there are fellow uh, addicts out there who can't stop going to see this movie. Exactly. What are you? What are well, your I mean. My initial thought when I heard it was coming out was, oh my God, what if they mess it up? Mm. And then my next thought was, they're bound to mess it up because, you know, Vangelis, the Vangelis of 1982 is long gone. Um, and, you know, and I, and the music is so important to me in the original film. And then when I heard when, uh, you know, when Zimmer was involved, I thought, oh, that's a disaster because I'm really not a fan. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, it turned up sort of within seconds of seeing the film for the first time, within seconds, you know, the opening sequence, I was completely hooked. I loved every moment of it um i thought it was very moving i thought it captured a lot of that was you know pretty much everything that was good about the original and i thought the plot was stunning and the cinematography was excellent loved the way they're playing with architecture i just thought it was a really yeah. intelligent incredibly well-made film so yeah i i loved it I, I really was i was so set up to uh to be disappointed i i, I really similarly like when i heard that they were doing this i was like oh my god why mm. would you why would you go like this is a masterpiece like don't you know and then and then yeah mm. i had the same thing i sat there in the theater and i was just just ravished by it i thought it was just uh mm. amazing mm. so uh so we will talk a little bit more about that but before we do um so so uh dr bunce wrote this uh this article like i mentioned in the new statesman the link is in the show notes uh, on this episode. So if you pull up your podcatcher, you'll be able to see it there and you can access it and read it. And I, I really recommend you do it. It's, it's, for one thing, it's a, it's a pretty short read, but it's also, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really good. And it's, um, and it kind of gets a lot of thoughts going. So, so check that out. And, um, because you have access to it, we're not going to go through the whole article in depth, but, um, we're mm. going to kind of, you know, just discuss little things and kind of jump off and then, um, 
wrap up with some thoughts about how this could um, sit within the context of our of our current world. So mm. the first thing I want to start with, you have a great quote in here by J.G. Ballard. Um, and the quote reads uh, that modern architecture, which, as you say, is being used in this sense as a metaphor for modern society, um, is like a huge machine designed not to serve the collective body of tenants, but the individual resident in isolation. And you do a really yeah. cool uh, job of, of sort of extrapolating from this into some some more themes that are going on. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what you think about um, the relationship of the individual to the collective um, in 2049? One of the things that I think is really interesting about this is kind of taking a long run up to the question, if you'll forgive me. But one of the things <laughs> I think is interesting about Ridley Scott's work in the 80s mm-hmm. was the way in which he massively de-emphasized government and he really focused on corporations as the big movers and shakers in the future Mm. and of course Ridley Scott's making Alien and he's making Blade Runner in the context of Reagan in the States and Thatcher in Britain and this big guy pushed to roll back government and to emphasize the importance of the market so it's kind of you know very much of the moment when Ridley Scott's making these films this is kind of the politics of the moment and in 2049 we can it's really obvious who's in charge uh, and it's 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 the big corporations that are in charge these are right. the things that dominate the skyline and the state hardly seems that there seems to be very little in the film to point to any kind of government you never see the american flag um and the one badge you see uh, which is on madam's shoulder clearly references the foundation of the city of los angeles in 1781 right, right. it doesn't it doesn't reference the, you know, the foundation of the United States or anything like that. Right. So it looks to me like what we're looking at is a kind of residual city-state following the collapse of the United States of America. Um, so, yeah, so I thought that was an, an interesting continuation of the kind of themes that Ridley Scott was exploring. Um, and as you go through the film, it's the, the, the government is clearly doing very little. And corporations are clearly doing a huge amount. And you can there's all kinds of really interesting hierarchies in the film. And they all go back to the idea that the Wallace Corporation is supreme and the LAPD is kind of, you know, a a kind of middle player here, if you see what I mean. Right. Although the LAPD, as you point out in the article, is the only visible um, government structure, right, in the whole in the whole entire film. That's that's the only uh, outward presence of, of any kind of government infrastructure that you see. Uh, so yeah, so, so, so you're right. Like the, the government is, is not only so far below the Wallace Corporation that it's just like in the sort of dingy garbage heaps of downtown Los Angeles, but it's also mm. been, uh, just desiccated. It's just basically this like police state. Um, Ex- right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite go as far as to say it's a police state. I think what's interesting is it's about what is the state fulfilling very, very limited functions. Mm-hmm. So one of the first bits of dialogue is where Madam says to, um, Kay, um, I'm not going to pay for that. And she's talking about his medical care. Right, 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 right in the very beginning, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know, because clearly America in 2049 doesn't have socialized health care. <laughs> right, you know, there's, right. there's, you know, um, or at least and at that point, you know, or, I mean, obviously, you know, even if they did have a socialized health care, I guess the question is, would it be extended to replicants? Yeah, the replicants would not but, be getting at it, yeah. But nonetheless, I thought it was a really nice kind of way into that society that you have the police driving around in these really dingy cars, mm-hmm. executing people, and right. um, and yeah, and this reference to, well, I'm not going to pay for that. Right, right. Uh, you, you also, you mentioned, uh, speaking of police, that uh, the policing has shifted 
uh, from uh, a policing against kind and not necessarily against infraction, right? Is, you want to talk a little bit about that? Mm. What, what yes. the function of the police are in this dystopian Los Angeles? Yes. So, I mean, obviously we don't see that much of what the police are doing because obviously the, the bit of the world we see is kind of largely driven by, um, by the plot. Mm-hmm. quite rightly. Um, but what we do see is that the police are interested in two things, and that is they're interested in borders and they're interested in kinds of people. So K is tasked with hunting down people who are the wrong kind, i.e. Right. They're, they're, they're replicants of the old generation. Right. But equally, the other time when you see any kind of indication of a state a state action is when they, at the end of the film, when they cross the border, when they leave Greater Los Angeles, and they get this kind of warning, you're leaving Greater Los Angeles, and you get the impression that there is a kind of a border police as well. Yeah. So I, ju- I thought in the context of kind of current debates in the developed world, for want of a better word, about... I mean, it seems to me that in the developed world at the moment, we are obsessed with borders. We are obsessed with keeping them out and protecting us. Right. Uh, and I'm generalizing massively, but I mean, that's a big Well, I think concern. it's a valid observation. And, and, and I think we should also point out that it's not even just geopolitical borders or anything. It's, it's also, you know, borders of, um, of, you know, race and class and ethnicity and, and mm. um, age. And yeah, like, I, I agree that borders are increasingly visible in so many different ways. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So, I mean, I thought, one of the things about science fiction, and, and we can talk about science fiction going back to like Zamiatin's We or H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. or you know, right or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Whenever we're dealing with science fiction, even though it's presenting a futuristic world in many cases or a kind of fantastic world, um, it's always, always dealing with the present day concerns. Right. And therefore, I thought it was worth thinking about it from the point of view of present day concerns. You know, it's funny when 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 two thousand forty nine was. Uh first released, we had a very long conversation, myself and the co-hosts, about how, how much we were going to engage with, with politics on this, because it's obviously, mm. there's, it's obviously very clearly, uh, allegorical and it, it, it fits within the paradigm of, of where we're sitting as, you know, because it was made during our time and it speaks to it. And, and mm. we, we, but we, you know, we also don't want to alienate people and we want to encourage a dialogue. Mm. We, what we kind of decided was that be, it, it is impossible to talk about this film or about science fiction more generally without addressing the fact that it's written in a time and in a place to address mm. the concerns of a society. Mm. So that's, that's, that's why, you know, yeah, that's part of why I wanted to have you on is, was because I think you kind of have to discuss that. You know, mm. you kind of have to be open to um, having your, your viewpoints challenged or having new things presented that might be uncomfortable because uh, like science fiction in my mind is, is the perfect mirror to be held up to a society, you know, it mm. allows you to see things mm. in a more realistic way by being so fantastical. So yeah, I totally, mm. totally agree with that. I need crazies. Fire. Oh, North. Fire. Oh, come on. Get up. Do you have a uh, a favorite character in the film? Oh my goodness, that's so hard. Um, I think my favorite character is Love. Really? Um, I th- cool. Absolutely. Yeah, she's yeah, she's, no, great. she's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think. From a political point of view, what the thing I like about her is her incredibly contradictory position mm-hmm. in the hierarchy of the world that we see. Because on the one hand, she's cl- she's not human. She therefore, in that sense, has no rights and enjoys no protection by the government. Right. You know, what's left of the government. But at the same time, whilst she is a slave, the fact that she is Wallace's slave means that she is more important 
than the vast majority of the characters we see on screen. So she can just walk into LAPD and execute someone and there are no repercussions. She can even walk into LAPD. I know, exactly. Yeah. She can walk into LAPD and she can kill, you know, the head of LAPD or the, the woman we assume is the head of the LAPD yeah. and, you know, just walk out and there are no, you know. And nobody does anything. Yeah. I mean, and exactly. she, she even, she had, ar- had already been in there to kill Coco too and she got out fine from that. Exactly. Right? She's like exactly. completely, uh, with, with impunity. She can go and do whatever yeah. she wants. Yeah. She's such a, a, thought- a, a contradictory character in so many ways. And I, I, I agree that like, that there are so many things about her mm. that, that are, hard to place you know about like mm. what, what her how much agency she has in this situation like if, if she mm. really believes what she's saying or like how, how she feels about wallace why she cries when she does yeah she's mm. a, a really cool uh character but go, go on yeah. and interrupt you but yeah no because I, I mean thinking about this in terms of hierarchy mm-hmm. one of the things that struck me about the original blade runner is the incredible line that roy batty says at the end you know, this is what it is to live in. Now you know what it is to live in fear. Right. That's what it is to be a slave. Right. And the intriguing thing about that statement is it places it right back in classical slavery rather than in plantation slavery. Can you explain that? Yeah, the big idea in classical slavery is that um, slaves are distinguished by an absence of independence, fundamentally. So one of the big ideas in classical drama is the slave whose master is away from home. Mm. And the thing about the slave whose master is away from home is that they are effectively the master. Right. But they live in the fear that the master could return at any moment. And so their slavery is not something, it's not an absence of freedom as we would understand it, because on a moment by moment basis, they, they're in, you know, they're fairly autonomous. Mm-hmm. The, the, the slave's great fear is the master returning. Um, so yeah, and that's the, that's the classical model of slavery. It's not and, the and plantation. When, when you say classical, you mean like classical Roman Greek antiquity exactly. period. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ancient slavery rather than, um, yeah, as I say, plantation slavery. Right. Which is an um, so, imperialist, uh, slavery. Basically. Yes, yeah. yes. Or, or yes, or the slavery in the American South. Right. So love seems to me very much like the, the figure of the classical slave mm. in that a lot of the time she's a very, very privileged individual. But it's those moments that when, when she's with Wallace that you can see that she's a slave. Yes, because yes. And I love the moment where she's standing there when the new replicant has just been born, the quote angel. unquote. Yeah, right. And, and what you've got is you've got Wallace surrounding love with his eyes. Right. And he's scrutinizing her from every single angle. And at that moment, you can tell that she cannot express the emotions that she's really feeling. Mm-hmm. And the one thing you see is the single tear. Right. So, yeah, so I thought love was a fascinating character from, you know, from the point of view of her position in the hierarchy. Wow, that's, that's, that's fantastic. That's, that's really, I don't think anybody's mentioned her status as a slave before on this podcast. That's, mm. that's really, really cool. Um, it's, it's funny because we've had the, if you've been listening to the show recently, you might have noticed the last few episodes have been kind of, um, they've, they've, they've kind of just lurched into these very long discussions on joy because for some reason she's, like such a, she's really become this like very thought provoking <laughs> character for a lot of us. And, uh, and we've gotten just uh, probably 30 or 40, uh, emails or call-ins or messages about people mm. wanting to continue to, to debate, um, you know, mm. joy and, and what, and what, who she is, uh, in relation to Kay and in relation to the world mm. and where she fits into this continuum of women and their portrayal in cinema mm. and all, and whether she's truly subjugated or she has agency or all these different things. Mm. But it, I, I think that mm. something that we've lost in getting so fixated on joy, although for people listening to this, we will come back to joy. Is, uh, is, <laughs> I don't, th- I think we've kind of uh, allowed love to sit there as this sort of uh-huh. just this, um, antagonist when she really is 
is a lot more complicated than that. And mm. when you see, mm. for example, uh, when she goes into the archives in the Wallace Corporation headquarters, um, and uh, I can never remember his name, the receptionist. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't remember his name, but but he, I, I, I'm assuming he's human because he, you know, he talks yes. about having parents and all these things and this genetic abnormality, yeah. and that's why he's on, on World. Um, and you see, the second Love shows up, he is like immediately. Um, it has this like very submissive, uh, he's getting out of her, he's like afraid of her, he's getting out of the way. Mm. Um, mm. so, so it's clear that she's able to exert a lot of, um, influence and intimidate humans, mm. right? Um, mm. and, and you see that every, just like you said, at the LAPD headquarters and things, but at the end of the day, she's, she's, at, she's fundamentally a slave. And, and it's not like she's mm. a, um, like a, uh, you know, like a, like a, a slave who's able to like control other slaves. Like she's actually just enslaved mm. by this system that she's set up. And I, I think, yeah, she's, mm. she's really cool. Do you have a favorite, uh, mm. a favorite scene from the movie? We'll get back to your article in a second, but I'm just kind of curious. Oh yeah, absolutely. My favorite scene, of course, and love's in it. Um, I think <laughs> right. my two favorite scenes are the one where love is having her nails done while yes. bombing, um, <laughs> whilst bombing the massive garbage dump. Right. Um, I'm saying that for the Americans, garbage, we wouldn't use that word in England, but anyway, I'll rubbish, say you, r- rubbish. Um, right. Rubbish, yes, right, rubbish right. dumps. Um, and my other favorite scene is, is obviously it's the denouement. It's the moment where Love and Kay fight on the seawall. Mm. Um, and I, I love that scene partly because, you know, it's everything coming to a climax and partly right. because the score at that moment is just oh, stunning. It's amazing, isn't it? I know. Yeah. That, that was, that and was be- the scene that sealed my appreciation for the score. Was, I, exactly. was that, was that, I, that like, exactly. that crystallized it and I was like, oh, I get it. I get what they're going for aesthetically. Yeah. yeah it's very powerful. Go on. And you get love, and I think this is a real window into love's soul, if yeah. indeed she has a soul, and the, the statement, I'm the best one, yes. which shows that she's internalized um, Wallace's worldview and that, mm. Wallace's, that Wallace's opinion of her matters. And the way that she stabs Kay in the gut and then kisses him, yeah. which is obviously a mirroring what um, Wallace had done to the newborn replicant. Right. I mean, all of that Good shows point, that she's right. just internalized Wallace's worldview and Wallace's way of thinking about things. Right. Um, and, and she wants, in some sense, to be Wallace and to have his good opinion. Right, right. You know, speaking of Wallace, uh, in, in your article, you make some, some really fascinating points about him and about how he is, uh, so incredibly powerful and how he represents this, the ultimate, you know, market power driven, um, economic <laughs> model. Um, and, uh, I, I want to talk about that in a second, but before I do, I, something else that you brought up that I thought was really fascinating that I hadn't even really considered was, that the the idea of um not, you, you say uh, nothing grows under the open sky and mm. uh, and that that really resonated with me because you're right like you know we see this the protein farming and the synthetic farming and the you know the Wallace designed stuff that sapper etc are using but um <clears throat> but every time you see things growing yeah they're they're completely um almost like sealed off in like a catacomb mm. uh, and mm. uh, I thought that was that was so fascinating but anyway that's I'm just bringing that up so people know to look for that because it's, it was a very cool point so Wallace what are your thoughts on him I liked him a lot um, yeah? I've read some reviews which said that he was massively overacting whatever I mean I thought he was doing a great job in the sense that what I want from my maniac entrepreneurs is I want them to be kind of visionaries but in a kind of very twisted way Mm. and i think wallace wallace is that he's a visionary in a very twisted way i mean my reading of him is that he's he is the 19th century european imperialist in the sense that he is going out building an empire Mm -hmm. and he's building the empire with some support from the state um or at least with the state turning a blind eye yeah yeah, right fundamentally 
<laughs> but fundamentally, it's a it's a it's a it's a market driven thing. It's a it's and I think this is where Ridley Scott gets his, gets his ideas from in Alien, certainly in the mm. first Alien. Um, the idea that actually, when should humanity colonize other worlds, it's going to be done on a on an imperialist model, which is to say right. that it's going to be done by big corporations. Right. So Wallace is your kind of Cecil Rhodes character, uh, or your your Karl Peters character, if we're mm. thinking of German imperialism. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing about both of those is that they were both appalling racists, right. but they were also people who had this glorious vision um, of a humanity which was um, which was kind of advancing, and science was advancing, and medicine was advancing, and control of reason was advancing. Right. So you've got these two things kind of being held in tension: the appalling racism and this kind of weirdly twisted utopian vision. Mm. And I think Wallace has all of that going on, and um, and that's one of the things I liked about him: that he was a recognizable kind of type from human history. Right, right. And it's funny if you just replace the word. Uh you know, planet when, when Wallace is speaking with, um, country or, you know, with like mm. sub-Saharan African nation state or something. Mm. Yeah. He, he just sounds mm. exactly like, you know, a, a 19th century, um, you know, imperialistic, uh, archetype mm. who's, and mm. you know, the, the idea that he's that, that the, uh, that the important thing is progress and the unimportant thing is sustaining this class of slaves. Like they, 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 they are, you know, disposable assets to be used uh, as mm. rungs on a ladder to some, you know, achievable proto-utopian dream. But what's funny is mm. it's like, like, why are these characters, uh, like, like, w w like, w I, I just wonder what's driving them. Like, like, like what, what, what Wallace, like, like what Wallace wants out of this whole thing, you know, like, like mm. what, what, why, why he's pushing so hard in that direction because he basically saved the world, right? Like th there is a complete collapse globally. Of food mm. supply, right? And then, uh, and, and he was able to engineer a solution to it. And I just wonder why, you know, like why this guy who seems outwardly almost like nihilistic, uh, like he, he seems like, you know, he's just like locked in a concrete bunker basically with nothing around him, um, killing <laughs> replicants that don't live up to his expectations mm. and not really interacting with it, you know, not showing any outward, um, joy or, or anything. Like, well, I, I just wonder what's driving him. What, what do you, what do you think? What do you think he wants out of this? Um, I think the answer to that is in his speech, which he gives when he is bemoaning the fact that he can't create life mm. or, you know, can't create reproduction. Um, and he says, you know, um, we've reached nine worlds, you know, a child can count that on fingers. Right. You know, we should be, we should be, we should be, we should be able to make millions so that we could be billions more. Right. And I think what he wants to do is he wants to conquer the cosmos just as, um, uh, Cecil Rhodes wanted to have a British corridor running from north, all the way from the north to the south of Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I think that's it. I think he's, it's all about conquest. It's about taking territory and it's about extending his influence and his rule, um, beyond these nine planets that he seems to think is not much of an achievement. Right. So, so, so you, so you would, you would, you would think that he's, um, acting in self-interest, basically not in some sort of global utopian ideal. Like, like this is really about his power. Um, I think it's both. I think what he does, and I think this is true of a lot of people, is or a lot of powerful people, is they assume that their power and hum and the good of humanity coincide. Mm. Um, mm. So, so the extension of the influence of the Wallace Corporation is also the extension of civilization, as far as he's concerned. Right. And I think it's interesting that he uses the word civilization. Every civilization was built off the back of, he says. Right. Um, so he's, you know, he's a civilization builder. Right. Um, and of course, that was the great lie underneath um, colonialism, mm -hmm. though, that that white Westerners or white Europeans rather were building civilization where there was none. 
Um, <laughs> right, and, right, and, right. And that's and how they were able to get away with it for so long. Right? Yeah. Well, that's that's how they deluded themselves. That's how they sold it back home. Yeah. And obviously, both halves of that were not true. They weren't really building civilization, and there was a civilization there before the white people turned up. Right. Um, so yeah, so I think it's interesting that Wallace is talking about colonies and he's talking about civilization. And it's so cool that he just fits so directly onto that colonialist um, continuum. Like he he really fits in that in that world as a recognizable archetype. So so even though he's fantastical, like you know he's this like you know crazy hermit who's you know populating stars with a slave workforce. Like he's he's he seems like mm. somebody that you might meet on the street, you know, and who um, if left to their own devices in, in 50 years or something could could you know potentially be in this kind of a position because because there are aspects of his character that seem very believable you know to mm. me. um i want to talk about architecture for a second because oh, that's yes. something that um actually i haven't really had a chance to discuss in this podcast before but it's one of my i, I almost actually became an architect it's one of my my really big mm. passions personally and you make a lot of really cool points about architecture in this piece um one of which uh just segueing from what we were just talking about is you say that uh the corporate offices of the wallace corporation resemble the burial chambers of pharaohs you want to talk about that for a second yes um so um, I think going back again to the 1982, the original Blade Runner, I think it's one of the things that's interesting to me, at least, about the Tyrell Corporation is the um, is the similarity between the design of the Tyrell Corporation pyramids and um, what's the word Mesoamerican architecture. Yeah, it's almost like a ziggurat or something, right? Very much so, yeah. and that I think is also echoed in Deckard's house. Where you've got all the kind of references to Mesoamerican architecture mm. with the concrete tiles the tiling, all around the yeah. place. Right. So I think, yeah, so I think there is an idea in the original Blade Runner that these things are serve a similar purpose to the you know, to, to pyramids, whether they be the pyramids of Africa or the pyramids of, of America. Mm-hmm in that they are the kind of central place in, in something which is a bit like an empire. And I think Wallace as well is like that. When I first saw Wallace, the interior of the Wallace buildings, a number of things struck me. Um, the first thing that struck me was the similarity to what I know of the, the interiors of Egyptian pyramids, mm. or specifically the big, you know, the Great Pyramid. Um, and it looked, very, yeah, I mean, it just immediately architecturally it looked like that. Um, the second thing that struck me was that it's all made out of wood. And of course, that's the signifier because Kay's little horse apparently is, you know, is worth millions or whatever. It's, right. it's, yeah. So if Kay's little horse is worth millions, then imagine an entire kind of office suite walled in wood. I mean, you know, that's a massive signifier that Wallace is, is hugely wealthy. Right. Money is no object for <laughs> right. it. Right. As, of course, is the water because Kay's shower is, you know, ah, I, I kind good of, point. I, I, I timed it, and he's got this 99.9% detoxified water, and he gets a burst of it, which lasts about a second. Yeah, right. But, but Wallace's offices, they're all bathed in this beautiful um, light that's coming off the water. Right, and, and, it's, um, and it's not even being used, as we can see, you know, for, for anything structural or anything. It's just there as, yeah. as ornament. Like, he has so much of it that it's just ornamentationally, yeah. you know, in, it, like which is beautiful from a set design perspective as well with the, all the mm. reflections and things. But yeah, but, mm. but it's, it, he has, it's like, it's like somebody, you know, paving their front stoop in, in, um, in euros or something, you know, it's like, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. like, right. Yeah. You know, it's, actually, no, I, I want to go back for one second. So we had an argument, uh, what well, wasn't really an argument, but a couple of episodes ago, we got a, an email from somebody who made the exact point that you just made 
Uh, which, mm. I, and I thought it was a really good point, but I uh, disagreed with one aspect of it. So he was saying that the fact that Wallace's headquarters are ostensibly covered in wood or created of wood mm. signify his vast wealth. And I, I, so I actually went back and saw it again after that episode aired to, to try to pay attention because I thought it was concrete. Um, or some, okay. or some kind of like a, a brick. Um, and yeah. I, and, and I came out of that feeling pretty confident that it was not made out of wood, but, but, but you know what you're talking about and you seem pretty confident. Well, I've so, got to, go I, yeah. I, I had exactly the same struggle. Okay. Because the reason, the reason I initially thought it was concrete is because I'm a massive lover of concrete architecture. Me too. Brutalism, and- what, what? <laughs> Brutalism, exactly. Yeah. And the interior of the Wallace building looks very much like the exterior of the fly towers on the National Theatre in London. Yes. So that was my immediate starting yeah. point. But the reason I think it's wood is because if you listen to the sound of the footsteps in the Wallace Corporation, mm-hmm. it's it's quite clear to me it's feet on wood, not feet on stone or concrete. Wow. Okay. So, so this I, is something we have. We have to find whoever did the foley for this picture, and we have to just exactly. ask them, like, what were you walking on? Yeah. Because I, I really, and, and I'm a sound designer uh, in addition to my ah. music stuff, and, and I was like, I was ah. like, I'm gonna really pay attention to the reverb that they use mm. on this, and and I, I really felt like it was stone. But you know what? Now I have no idea again. Yeah. So you're probably right. I'm going to go back. I guess this means I have to go watch it a seventh time this weekend. So, you know, exactly. I yeah. Everyone needs to watch it more. That's, that's the take home message from this podcast. They, it's so cool that you bring up this, this, uh, burial chamber thing because the Wallace Corporation, like the building is this, I mean, it's like the size of, uh, of like a continent. It's like, it's like so unimaginably mm. large. And actually on, on the, on the episode that we just aired, um, we have a, a this great interview that Jamie did with Weta, the, you know, the effects team that was behind the, oh, yeah. the miniatures and the, and the built environments for the film. And they talk uh-huh. about how they built that whole thing practically um, in a warehouse, which is just insane to me, to scale. Um, and they had mm. to find like the smallest size of fiber optic cabling, the smallest diameter mm. that was like creatable outside of like nano <laughs> stuff because mm. to get the lights to look correct and to make the scale work, it had to be so infin- infinitesimally small um, and I was just thinking, like, the size of this thing must be just, like, mm. unimaginably huge to scale, you know? And that Absolutely. whole entire thing is empty, uh, essentially, from what we see. Like, it, it is so, it, mm. it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, it's like devoid of clutter, but it's funny because because then Joy or, or Love rather says that you know he's a data hoarder, right? Yes, um, yes. <laughs> but he apparently doesn't hoard anything else because it's 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 almost like a vacuum inside. You know, it's it's just incredibly mm. Spartan, and it does feel it feels almost like it's for it's like some sort of a mausoleum, or it feels like it's some sort of a mm. like the emptiness in that building to me signifies other thematic things that we haven't even you know begun to really unpack yet, and um, that mm. there's definitely reasons why it looks like that. Yeah, I was thinking. It reminds me a lot of. Are you familiar with Daniel Liebeskind at all, the American architect? I'm not. No. What's he done? He well, he did the the World Trade Center Memorial, and he did the Holocaust Memorial, oh. and um, a, a number of other. Oh um, yeah, no, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah, just incredible. Mm. Uh, and and his, his architectural style um, really reminds me a lot of some of the interiors. So I, I, if you're listening to this mm. podcast, um, look up Daniel Liebeskind and. Uh, it's, it, it's just in terms of the, the starkness of the geometries and the, and the how, mm. how v- the verticality is like so forefront and so sharp and so, mm. um, it's, it's like a design element because you're right. It, it looks almost like it's like the, you know, the, 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 the flies above a stage of a, of a theater. It's just like this giant mm. vertical projection, you know? And mm. uh, yeah, super, super cool. Also, mm. uh, before we uh, wrap this up, I, I, architecturally, I was really struck by, the first time you fly over Los Angeles and you get you get a sense mm. of what the cityscape looks like because right in, in 2019 we always see it from street level more or less mm. right there's a couple of flyover shots but 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 the the overall feeling of the city is really from you know the the level of the human eye being kind of dwarfed in this 
you know, mm. this incredibly uh, bombastic world. But in mm. 2049, it, we, we, at least it seems to me, we, we see the overhead shot in a much mm. a, a more uh, less romanticized way and in a much uh, more visible way because it's brighter, mm. you know, where they show it at daytime. And, mm. uh, and it is so oppressive. Like these, just the, you, you mentioned in your piece how there's this complete breakdown of, of structure, of planning. And, mm. uh, it reminded me a little bit of the Kowloon Walled City. Do you, do you know about that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a really good, that's a really good reference. Yeah. I mean, I was taking my starting point from kind of two ideas. Um, the first is an idea by, um, an author whose name escapes me. It's called The New Kind of Bleak. Yeah. And, um, the book, The New Kind of Bleak, is about architecture in, in a world where there, there is no planning anymore because planning has been rejected as something which, um, you know, which is, is, uh, which is antithetical to the market. Mm. That if you just leave everything to the market, you know, then the architecture will be fine. And of course, in reality, the consequence, the consequence of leaving planning to the, to the market is that you just get, incredibly irrational things happening um, right. in, in your architectural world. Um, so it looked to me very much like that kind of new kind of bleak. And the other thing, as you already said, I was, I was thinking of J.G. Ballard and J.G. Ballard's amazing right. book, High Rise, um, which, is, which is all set inside a big um, concrete skyscraper. Mm. Um, it's an, a novel. And I was, it's a novel. Okay. It's called High Rise. It was turned into a movie, I think, two years ago. Yeah, it sounds familiar. It, I'll check that out. It's it's basically it's an allegory for modern capitalism where you've got the, the people at the top and the people at the bottom are at war with each other and it all just reverts to kind of barbarism right. um so and and he does an awful lot with um using architecture as a metaphor for social relations mm. um and i think what you've got in the skyline of um of los angeles in 2049 is you've got the skyline which is dominated by th a few megastructures which are clearly corporate headquarters right. with the one exception of the lapd and i think that tells you about who is who's in charge in los angeles in 2049 right. so my reading of it is that what's happened between 2019 and 2049 is that basically the United States has collapsed and what you've probably got is, you know, three or four city states, right. um, which look kind of pretty much like Los Angeles. And then you've got this hinterland area, um, which is just ruined and desolate and full of synthetic farms. Right. And it's, and it's just incredibly sprawling because it, it's it, like mm. there's, there's almost nowhere to live between these, you know, megapolises. Mm. So, uh, mm. right, so everybody just aggregates into these huge built up environments and the, and the, the rest of mm. it, like we see in Las Vegas, is basically just uninhabited. Yes, um, yeah. I, yeah. I, as, as you were speaking, I looked it up. It was Owen Hatherley. Um, That's the guy. Wrote a new, a new yeah. kind of bleak by Owen Hatherley. So I'll, I'll put a link mm. to that in the in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 just amazing how it is it is so truly oppressive. And it's interesting that you know we tend to think of oppressiveness um, in terms of uh, like things that are, are like you know the state is is so is so um, oppressively visible that you feel small mm. compared mm. to it or something. Or, or you know you think of um, you know like Stalinist things where it's like, you know, mm. like, like you're such a, an insignificant bug in this ecosystem that doesn't even care about you because mm. it's so powerful and it's so rigid and it's so built up and it represents mm. so many deep ideas and so many things about identity and about nationalism, etc. But in Blade mm. Runner, um, and especially in 2049, you don't have that. Like the oppressiveness is coming out of the degradation of, of humanity, you know? Mm. Um, mm. and, and yet in, in that vacuum where the, 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 you know, the traditional notions of human culture are broken down, you have this like, this like explosion of commercialism. And mm. that becomes oppressive. And, and I, and I think what's so cool about the point that you make is that you can, it, it, like that whole thing is, is wrapped up in this breakdown of, of structure and of infrastructure and of, mm. 
Um, you, you mentioned also that uh, every every apartment has its own air filtration system, which is something that I, I noticed as well. And it yes. seems it, it's like all it's all part of this is the shift to to the the it's like the breakdown of an infra, of like a planned infrastructure and the 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 building up of this individually created you know survival mechanism basically. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that was the thing. And the the thing, the moment where it, the penny dropped for me was yeah. inside the Wallace Corporation, where you see the keyboard. Um, and the thing about the keyboard is it's beautifully ergonomically designed. Mm-hmm. So you've got this massive contradiction between the outside world, which is, you know, which is incredibly brutal. And then inside the Wallace Corporation, where they have micro-engineered the workstation of this receptionist guy, right. so that it's incredibly ergonomically friendly. Um and that strikes me as being the kind of world we live in, um, in the sense that, you know, there are, you know, there are huge, massive problems. And yet at a micro level, the market is able to produce really beautiful solutions um, to my every whim, if I assuming I have the money to pay for them. Right, right, right. Well, I guess that leads us into our final question. And, and before we do, I, I just have to thank you again so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. And I, I really sincerely hope we can get you on again um, to talk. More My about pleasure. Thank you point. for having me. Um, but, but we're not quite done yet. Before, before we wrap up, uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on how this film resonates in, in, in our contemporary actual world. What, what are some things that really um, spoke to you about how this movie feels like it's speaking to, to all of us? One of the characteristics of the modern world is that we need labor, but we don't want to extend rights to the people who do the menial jobs. Mm. Okay? Um, so, I mean, in Britain right now, the whole Brexit thing, one of the reasons that Brexit has happened, in my view, is that for years and years and years, we have um, had um, migrants coming over here to do the jobs that British people don't want to do. Um, and of course, those migrants want rights and they want to be treated with respect. Um, and that's, in, as, as far as I can see, that's exactly the way it should be. But for a lot of people in Britain, um, they want the labor, but they don't want to extend these people the, the rights that would come with, you know, with treating these people as genuinely, you know, as human and as equal and as, you know, and, and, and as, 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 yeah, as citizens. Mm-hmm. And I think what Blade Runner presents is it takes that to the extreme where they, where human beings have got round the problem of extending the people who work rights um, by creating a workforce that just don't have any rights. And the great thing about the workforce is they're in this special legal category, replicant, um, where they are, you know, behave like humans and they look like humans, but, you know, crucially, they are completely disposable. Right. Um, so I think from my point of view, looking at it from, you know, the concerns which are kind of like bubbling away in Britain right now, I thought that was what spoke to me. And it's interesting, uh, this reminds me of something that Jamie brought up on a previous episode about the, the kids in the orphanage, um, and how mm. it really seems to echo, um, in, in some ways, like, for example, um, Apple's relationship with Foxconn, you know, and with these giant, mm. um, Chinese, uh, assemblers and manufacturers that, that do this labor for very cheap by, you know, housing people in these, you know, mm. communes, basically where they work for, you know, 170 hours or something a week. And then mm. these people that will never actually get to use these devices and will never be in a position where mm. they're, you know, they have the the assets to be able to buy any of this. 
But, mm. um, but, but we don't even, we don't even see them. Like, you know, like, like for me, like I have an iPhone and I, I turn it on and I don't even think about how it arrived in my hands, you know? I don't mm. even think about mm. where it, where it came from. And, and in a way, it's not like we're enslaving these people, but, but we're so far removed from them that, that they seem like, uh, almost like they don't even exist. And, and yeah, I, I, th- mm. I, I definitely get a sense of that. Uh, in 2049, both both with the orphanage, but also with this idea of slave labor and of a disposable workforce that doesn't have the same mm. rights and the same access. No, absolutely. And I think the orphanages were fascinating. One of the things that I think was really interesting about the orphanages is that the children in the orphanages are human, which means that at any moment, somebody from the city could turn up and say, I want that one. Mm-hmm. And then their life would be transformed. Um, because the, the very fact that they're human means that they could potentially have a much better life. Whereas for an, a Nexus 8, that is never ever a possibility. So I think there's a really interesting distinction. You know, again, the hierarchies are all very confused, but at the bottom, at the bottom of it all comes down to the, are you a replicant? Are you human? Are you a Nexus 8? And if you're a Nexus 8, well, that's it. You know, there, there is just, there's no talking about it anymore, as it were. Right, right. Well, that's uh, about all the time we have. I, I really can't thank mm. you enough for being on. Um, again, this is uh, Dr. Robin Bunce. You can read his article. It's called uh, Blade Runner 2049's Politics Resonate Because They Are So Perilously Close to Our Own. It's on the New Statesman, and I will link to it in the show notes. And I, I really recommend you read it. And um, as always, send us your thoughts. If you have reactions to this episode, we would love to get them. And uh, again, Dr. Bunce, thank you so much for coming on. Not at all. Thank you for having me and um, love listening to your show. Great. All right. All right. Take care, everybody. Uh, after Patrick's interview with Robin, I heard some things that I thought that I wanted to hear more about, especially from you. I know my opinions uh-huh. on certain things. Um, so I rang up Robin, and he was interested in speaking, and uh, so we thought we would kind of further dive into aspects of love, which you said was your favorite character, and I want to know why she's your favorite character. She's not... A lot of people talk about her like, yeah, she was awesome, but people don't go in-depth into her. And uh, uh-huh. so I want to... I'm curious as to why you relate to her, and what 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 is it about her character for you? I think... Love is interesting to me because she seems to be um, a kind of extrapolation of kind of modern trends in terms of what we as human beings are becoming and the problems with being a human being in the modern world. Mm-hmm. So from my point of view, I think one of the issues about being a human being in the modern world is the problem of the self and the problem of kind of being a person who is continually forced to put on an act or to play a role. And at some point, you know, you, you, the process of putting on an act or playing a role means you kind of lose yourself. And love seems to me to be, and, and Kay as well, seem to be trapped in a world where they are required um, to completely put their self on hold and be subservient to other people. And we see this really clearly in Kay's baseline test, where Kay has this mantra about cells interlinked and dreadfully distinct and all this kind of stuff. And what the guy behind the screen, and we never see his face, is doing is he's subverting that. He is he's he's basically bullying Kay, and Kay is required to completely put himself to one side and be emotionally fine with being bullied, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and love is exactly the same. And my and so. 
the thing about love is she is, and she's inter- she introduces herself as. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. Follow me. And it seems to me that, that that's her whole purpose. Her whole purpose is to serve Mr. Wallace. And that includes buying into Wallace's kind of um, utopian dream that this new form of slavery is the ultimate end of civilization or it is the new thing which is going to bring the new waves of civilization. So she is, on the one hand, she's enslaved to Mr. Wallace. And on the other hand, she has to entirely embrace that to the point of saying that her kind of slavery is the fabulous new and her kind of slavery is a gift to humanity Mm -hmm. um and and she and she has to kind of in no way um ever give any indication that there is any tension between her being enslaved and and the system that is enslaving her as if you see what i mean Mm -hmm. and she's so i thought so i thought that was fascinating so that's what i thought was fascinating about her Absolutely, and uh, I think she is almost um, absent of self. She's absence of agency. She she is only agent as opposed to agency. She is not. Uh, she is acting on behest of her owner and not on behest of who she is. I think that's uh, that's what she wants us to believe, and that's what she wants Wallace to believe. But I don't think that's entirely true. And my feeling is that the point where you see the tensions. Well, the first point you see the tension is where she walks into um, Wallace's, um, she walks into the kingdom of heaven without a gift. And you can see there, there's a moment in her face where you can see, oh my goodness, I've messed up, I've done something wrong. Um, And then you see it again when she's confronted with um, the newborn who Wallace kills. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that what Wallace is doing is in that moment is he's testing love. That is love's baseline test. Because throughout the whole scene, one of Wallace's eyes is hovering immediately mm-hmm. directly in front of Love's face. Mm-hmm. So Wallace is scrutinizing her because obviously, um, I would imagine, Love feels some kind of empathy or some kind of kinship with this newborn female replicant mm-hmm. who Wallace is abusing in the most horrible way. Um, and Love has to be completely impassive during that whole thing. And and. The fact that she manages that, and all you see is a single tear and a slight tremor in the lip, the fact that she manages that shows that she's passed her test, and that's why Wallace says as he walks away, you know, you're the best, you're the best one. Yes, yes, it's it's fascinating, you know, and, and to... Uh, a point that you made when you were discussing with Patrick about um, kind of corporations wanting cheap labor, but they also don't want to give that labor any rights. And uh, I, I felt that that was particularly powerful. Um, just, you know, and I'll, I'll give a reference of my own experience. I mean, I work for a major corporation. And uh-huh. uh, they oftentimes at the ends of my shifts, I'll get essentially tests sent to me. How was your shift? How do you feel? Yeah. All, all these series of questions. As someone who is employed by a major corporation that has very a lot of sway in uh the american probably world but certainly american social Mm. uh social and economic um environment um it's interesting to see them kind of doing i mean it's not a baseline test i mean there is some parallels there but just like how are you doing how are you feeling um you know and it's not like a test to see if i'm okay i mean it is a test to see if i'm okay 
Certainly. Mm. Um, and mm. I was thinking about the baseline tests and um, that idea of looking for variations. Is he more than a slave? And if he's more than a slave now, mm. then he is dangerous to us. And how um, that is kind of going on in our society today. I mean, I think that there's a lot of ref reflection of this idea of cheap labor, this idea of, yes, we want these things almost for free, but we don't want to pay anything. We don't want to mm. give wh whoever's giving us these things for free any rights or any um, agency or like almost personhood in a way. Like, mm. like mm. We, these words that we use, whether it's alien, illegal, alien, um, immigrant, where it distances mm. ourselves with these people. So they're not people. They're not Americans. They're immigrants. They're aliens. Yes. Um, yes. And I thought that that was a uh, very, very, a very, very um, astute observation by you, and it was just something that really stuck out to me. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's really, and you can see that really in um, in Sapper, that he is um, he's the farmer, of course, um, and as I understand it, um, in America. Um, in your big agribusinesses normally, or at least for, for many years, it was immigrant labor, migrant labor that, that, that did an awful lot of that work um, and had to fight enormously hard for the rights they currently have, which, um, as I understand it, are not the same as citizens. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I mean, I thought, um, and I think that is the problem of the modern world. The problem of the modern world, um, or the economic problem of the modern world, is that capitalism needs workers, but it doesn't want to reward them. Um, and Capitalism is kind of hooked onto issues of race and issues of nation um, in order to um, kind of set one class of workers against another um, so that the migrant worker, um, for various reasons, can be, quote unquote, legitimately denied, um, denied the, the rights that a citizen would um, would um, would have. And I think one of the interesting things about Blade Runner in that sense is that the problem Wallace has is a problem of labor. He can't produce replicants fast enough to do the things he wants to do with them. Mm -hmm. And yet, just outside the city, there's a massive reservoir of untapped labor. Mm -hmm. And it's the orphans. Um, but of course, Wallace can't employ the orphans because they are human beings, and therefore he would have to accord them rights. Um, so you have this weird situation where there's a huge amount of people sitting outside the city who are kind of doing this incredibly menial work. Um, but they can't be asked to do you know, anything more than that. They can't be brought inside the city because that would involve empowering them and giving them rights and respecting them. And that's exactly what the, the economy of 2049 doesn't want to do. Yeah, it's just, my God, like I, I had revelations of Blade Runner, just the whole world and the universe. I mean, the first film and the second film and how the second film essentially turns some things on its head. And it's... It's it's amazing. There's so much to process, but I want to kind of move on. And I really am interested in mm. your opinions of joy. And I felt like I have you here now, and um, I know you've heard, you've been listening to our discussions. Um, and I think mm. it's interesting to get someone else's view of uh, what's your relationship to joy. How do you see her working as opposed to is she technology or is she sentient? Um, I think she's both of those things, and I think she kind of had in order to be the technology that tells you what you want to hear and, you know, shows you what you want to see. In order to be that, she has to be sentient. And I think that's the paradox in the programming. Um, but I'll take a step back because when I was watching the film, 
for the very first time, and I've seen it six times now, and I say that as a badge of honor. Oh, me too. Five um, times. <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You know, it's it's a competition, yeah. isn't it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, when I when I first saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is a completely atomized society. There is there are no kind of regular human relationships here. There are no family groups outside the individual, really. Um, and I immediately thought back to Tocqueville and his d- Democracy in America, specifically the second part, because one of the things that Tocqueville, basically the father of sociology, on what yeah says, is that the dynamics of modern society drive people apart. Um, and he's. In the second half of democracy in America, he's kind of looking to the future and he's thinking, well, what is America going to be like in 100 years or so, whatever? And he says, Americans are going to be very, very independent of each other. And this independence, this drive to kind of see the world their own way, each individual with their own worldview, drives people apart. Blade Runner 2049 strikes me as being a society in which technology and the market have found solutions to all of the problems that a citizen might have, or rather a consumer might have. Um, And one of the problems we have in the modern world is isolation, Mm -hmm. and technology therefore provides a solution. And the great thing about a replicant or a hologram is that they can entirely buy into your worldview because they don't have the agency of another human being. So... My relationship with another human being may be strained. We may fall out because we see the world differently. That's the kind of thing that Topville predicts. Um, but we can solve that by I can have synthetic relationships with things which um, look very much like human beings, but are in some way lacking. Now, I think the paradox is that joy, in order to be everything that Kay wants, has to be sentient. She has to be able to respond in the moment and understand him intuitively and all of this kind of stuff. And that means, yeah, and and because she has to be that good um, at meeting his needs, she also therefore has to be intelligent and sentient. um, And that's the paradox of joy. Yes, she is a she is a. A bunch of you know of, of subroutines she is a, a, a software package but the software package has become so sophisticated that she is able to actually function very much like a, a like a real person but i'm curious if the same thing is happening in other buildings with other if the, the, the that model is doing the same thing she is sentient and she has to be because she has to learn she has to know you all of those things like and I, and I think to myself I've been thinking about joy as it relates to Facebook and memes and I, I log on Facebook mm. and Facebook has a lot of algorithms so I'm seeing things that I like to see all the time it's telling me mm. telling me things Facebook tells me what I want to hear in fact I was just reading about their <laughs> their uh, messenger and they're saying the speaker on your phone your messenger the uh, the Facebook Messenger is connected to, and let's said said because there's been times where I've said something and all of a sudden I log on Facebook and there it is and then there it is again and I'm thinking how is that possible that Facebook is putting in front of my face what I've just seen because their algorithms are made that way, um the, mm. their their the way that it's connected to your microphone the way that Messenger works all those things anyways in relationship to joy I I just felt like joy is Every funny meme I've seen, every everything that I, I click on because I want to, because I you know I mm. I want mm. I'm looking for a certain narrative, and joy is that narrative, um, and I think, and in some ways I live with joy 
um, because, mm. but, and then I, but I, I, I'll digress and say all of that, all of those things, even though in relationship to Joy, even though she's a hologram of light and she's sentient or whatever she is, maybe, mm. she's still not a full human experience. She's still a, a, a facsimile of a human experience. Yes, um, I, I take your point. I think the the sense in which she's not human is that her relationship with Kay is too is too one sided. Mm-hmm. She is too focused on Kay's needs yes. all the time, and Kay is not giving her all the things that she would need. And that seems to be the the area in her programming where she's lacking is that she doesn't need Kay's affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I'm guessing the comeback to that is that she does seem to exhibit some kind of jealousy. So I haven't quite made up my mind about that. But it strikes me that if there is a weakness in her, in terms of her not being fully human, that would be it. But as I say, now I'm thinking about it, the jealousy thing would indicate that actually um, her programming has become so sophisticated that she approximates a human to such an extent that, um, that it's really, really hard to tell the difference. Um, in terms of is this a universal thing? Are all joys able to be as um, as sentient as um, as the joy we we see in in the show? Um, one of the things your um, your panel said the other night was that what joy does is she brings out the best in K, and what K does is she is he brings out the best in joy. And of course, that's exactly the way that a good, healthy human relationship should work. So, and I think there's some truth in it. I liked that as a as a kind of reading of it. I think we do see evidence in the film that there are general patterns developing with the new breed of replicants. So one of the things that struck me as being quite interesting was that both Kay and um, Love have developed the capacity to lie. In spite of the fact that it seems to be one of the things that Wallace guarantees, um, you know, part of his stable product is you can rely on them and that replicants don't lie. But it seems to me that in different ways, Love and... um, Love and Kay have both developed that capacity. And again, that strikes me that what Wallace has done is he's created a product that he doesn't quite fully understand. Mm. And therefore, and it's, and it's, I think this is to do with complexity. The more complex a system is, the harder it is to predict all of the different possibilities that it can present to you. And Wallace has created something that is so complex that, you know, that he, even he, a genius though he is, an evil genius, I should add, but a genius though he is, he, even he can't see that, um, you know, they're going to be able to develop the capacity to lie in, a, in subtle ways and in undetectable ways, but nonetheless the capacity to lie. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah, there's so much to continually unpack from this film. Um, and I don't remember if Patrick asked you this, but I'm just fascinated, again, based off your piece and the level of conversation. Do you have a favorite moment in 2049, and why? Oh, my favorite moment, undoubtedly, is um, it's the denouement. It's the point um, where Love and Kay are fighting out on the seawall. Okay. Um, and it's just got everything. I mean, Love's there, and she's... And I think the, the thing I like about Love is... Um, is that she's completely sold out for Wallace. And that you can see in that moment that she's completely internalized. Or in that moment, she mm-hmm. has she has peace with, with her role because she says to herself, as she apparently has defeated Kay, I'm the best one. Mm-hmm. And the point where she defeats Kay, she stabs him in the gut and she kisses him, which, of course, is exactly what Wallace has done mm-hmm. to the, um, the, the newborn replicant. So she has, even though she's a slave, she is doing 
everything that she can in her power to kind of to give Wallace what he wants, even when he's not there. Um, and I think that's intriguing about her. And I think there's something about the violence of that moment, the emotional release that comes through the violence, which allows her to reconcile her enslavement with with um, with the role she has to play and the person she's playing that role for. Mm. Yeah. And I, that scene too, and I, I haven't quite fully processed this, but I feel like water is a very, um, I think you guys t- talked about the, uh, the idea of water and water being very, mm. it's a very um, uh, a priceless commodity. I know Kay takes a shower and it's like, it lasts mm. like five seconds or two seconds or whatever. Um, mm. And the idea that she's kind of submerged in water and drowned, um, but water, mm. water people are also baptized in water. As, as if they're co- yes. coming to new life. Um, so I, again, I'm processing these things. I don't have an answer. I'm just kind of throwing that out there a little bit. But there is certainly the, the score for sure, but there is a power of that scene, of that moment, um, that I can't quite describe what it does to me, but it's doing something pretty amazing um, in me emotionally and intellectually. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible scene. And I think it kind of brings together all that is wonderful about the film because the music reaches a real high. You've got this incredible, what they've done is they've constructed a cityscape, which is, you know, which is um, based on an ecological disaster. And they're using one artifact of that um, in order, the the city wall as a kind of backdrop to this incredible and denouement. So yeah, I think it's a wonderful scene. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, every time I sit through the film, I just can't wait to get to that moment. I'm, there's always a kind of thrill of anticipation yeah. as, um, as as the spinners kind of head out of Los Angeles. Can you explain to me what denouement means for those who don't oh, know? Oh, sorry. <laughs> kind of the climax. Yes. Okay. I'm probably I'm probably doing an injustice to the word denouement, but yeah, climax. Okay, okay. Um, and the scene for me that really I wait for is um, the scene for – it's just one of the most powerful scenes I've seen in a film ever is uh, when – Deckard is confronted with the Rachel Klum. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah. Yes, and it's, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, and I I have been comparing it to um, the scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo when Judy Barton emerges as Madeline Elster, but there's something diff- uh-huh. different about her, and in that moment. She, She's almost rejected, and much uh-huh. like um, Rachel too, emerges from the shadows to present herself to this man that hopes, hopefully, she probably wants to love him. She wants him to love her. Um, and I, mm. It's just, and then because she doesn't measure up, because she's not exactly the same, she's destroyed. And uh, I, mm. I, there is as much as for myself, and I've said this before on our show. Um, Rachel has really been this uh, well Rachel haunts the entirety of 2049 I mean she's present throughout it Mm. you feel her presence in it Um, and for me she is the heart and soul of the original but then I see this Mm. this clone that is essentially Rachel and it might even have her memories just because it's made from her DNA I don't really know Mm. we don't know Mm. you're not told that but she's looking at Deckard with familiarity she's looking at Mm. Deckard like she knows him um, and people aren't talking about that, but this clone looks like it's been given every one of Rachel's memories, which could have been stored in her bones. We don't know. Mm. But because mm. she doesn't measure up to a memory that Deckard has that may or may not be true about her eyes, she is then destroyed. And my heart just broke for her, this this replicant that mm. just wants to be loved. And she doesn't know why she's there. She looks like she was just 
uh, remade in the past however long since her bones were discovered uh, with a mm. plot to recapture Deckard to see if maybe he could father another child. Um, mm. Anyways, not to go on too long about that, but that is my most uh, favorite, favorite moment of 2049. Oh my goodness! Now I can remember when that happened because all the way through, I wanted Sean Young to be in the movie in some way, yeah. um, because as you say, she's just fabulous in the original movie. She's incredible in the original movie. Um, so yeah, so all the way through, I was kind of willing her to be there in some way, shape, or form, and then there she was, yeah. um, and you know, and obviously doing the voice uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's an incredible moment. I mean, my reading of it is that every part of Deckard wants to wants to love her, mm-hmm. um, and as he says, oh, her eyes, her eyes were green. Um, you can, you can tell there's a break in his voice. Um, and he's rejecting her, not because he wants to reject her. He's rejecting her because there is a bigger purpose. And the bigger purpose is to protect, um, to protect his daughter. Mm -hmm. And on the note of his daughter, I think one of the things that's interesting, if we compare love to, um, Dr. Astaline, um, sorry, Dr. Anastaline, um, they are two sides of the opposite. They're, they're two sides of an opposite. So the thing which makes love distinctive is that she's wholly dependent on Wallace's goodwill. Mm-hmm. If Wallace loses interest in her or if Wallace is displeased with her, she can just be shot on the spot or she could be, you know, consigned to a colony and, and die in a mine. You know, Wallace, Wallace controls her fate utterly and therefore he, she is utterly dependent on his will. Whereas one of the things we learn about Dr. Anastasia is that Wallace offered to buy her out and she said no and her rationale for saying no to Wallace is I take my freedom where I can find it so Dr. Astaline wants to be independent of Wallace she doesn't need you know she the last thing she wants is to be dependent on him in any way mm-hmm. so you've got this dependence independence kind of dialectic going on between Anastaline who wants to be independent even you know she's the replicant who wants to be independent or the half-replicant who wants to be independent, we don't know, and Love, who sadly is a slave because she's wholly dependent on the will of another. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, the setups for both Neander and for uh, Staline, whereas they're both, we both, we meet them both, and they're in these very holy kind of places. We first meet Staline in a a wooded forest. You know, of course, it's fake, but Mm. it's, it's kind of like the temple of nature. And then we yes. we meet, um, and I've talked about this with Patrick. Um, we uh-huh. we meet Neander in a very man-made kind of holy, like very serene surroundings, and they're both mm. and they're both kind of almost prisoners of their surroundings. Um, we don't see them. They're kind of that's where they find their. I don't know. That's where their world is. Whether it's in the creation of mm. replicants or the creation of replicant memories. And again, these are things I'm still processing. And things I'm still trying to kind of understand for myself mm. where they might be placed as as we continue to journey on this this you know this mm. this epic film. But mm. I just thought it was something interesting to point out in terms of uh, these temples that we're seeing, what these man-made temples to something real that is not real. Um, mm. Mm. And it goes yes. Go ahead. And the design is really interesting from that point of view because everything in the Wallace Corporation is at right angles. Um, or rather everything inside the Wallace Corporation is at right angles Mm -hmm. with one small exception which I won't trouble you with whereas everything in Astaline's world is just this big kind of hemisphere Mm -hmm. isn't it Mm -hmm. 
and and Wallace's world is enormously warm because you it's just surrounded by wood and you've got the rippling of the water mm -hmm. whereas Astley's world is kind of very clinical um because you've got the kind of gray of the raw concrete of the walls. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is interesting the way they are setting them up. The other thing I thought was interesting about Anna Staline's um, space in the film is that it's only on the kind of just outside of her laboratory that you really get to see the open sky. Mm -hmm. It's the only place in, in the film which within the city walls, which doesn't feel entirely claustrophobic. Um, and and my and what I think they've done there is they've they've taken, and I, I was reading some interviews with the um, people who designed the architecture. They've taken some of the most optimistic architecture from London skyline as their basis for Anna Staline's um, surroundings. Um, so yeah, so lots of the city is not at all optimistic in terms of the architecture. It's, it's you know incredibly oppressive. But Anastasia, there's this kind of the architecture reflects the optimism of, of of I think what she represents in the film. Yes, I would agree. And yeah, and it's interesting as well. Again, like you said, the the optimism is there despite her surroundings not being entirely optimistic. Um, mm. It's very interesting. Mm. Her life seems fuller, even though it isn't. Um, she, you can just tell there's not a there's not a an ulterior motive for her. There's not an insidious plan that she's devising. And it's all over her surroundings and her space. She's there to kind of bring love. She's there to make joy, give, you know, make things easier for replicants. Um, yes. She's one of the few characters who, um, who seems to feel some empathy with replicants. I mean, Wallace is really interesting in the sense that on the one hand, he says, Oh, I've got millions of children. And he's and there's the whole kind of oh it's your birthday thing going on, um, but at the same time he just has no regard for them at all, and is very happy to execute them in the most cruel and brutal way. Um, so yes, so again, they're, they're, she's the polar opposite of Wallace in that sense. She has got what Roy Batty has at the end of the first film, which is to say she feels kinship mm -hmm. with other beings, mm -hmm. whereas Wallace doesn't seem to feel kinship. And I think the crucial thing about Wallace is he doesn't need to feel kinship. He is so powerful yes. that it does, you know, he can just treat anybody that what you know he can treat a human or he can treat a replicant in any way he, he chooses because uh, you know the world needs him so much because he's the guy who gives them synthetic farming and synthetic workers. Yeah, and he's almost uh, that's almost given him carte blanche to do whatever he wants. You know, he's, exactly. he's, he solved the food, the food crisis. So what are they really going to say to him? Nothing. Um, mm. Mm. I, I want to go back to, you talked about the word, the use of the word real. And if you could talk about that. Yes. I think this is a very interesting point in the film in that I guess technically the opposite of reality is fiction. And yet in Blade Runner 2049, the word real just keeps emerging over and over again. Um, and it's always meaning different things. So Mariette, for example, says, oh, you don't like real girls. And there she's using reality as a, as a kind of code for physical. And unreal would therefore be holographic. Um, whereas when Joy uses the word real, she means real as in human. Um, so there she's got the dichotomy real, unreal, mapping onto human replicant. Mm -hmm. And then you've got real again used by, um, used by the, the chief of police, who is again, sadly, her name I can't remember. Joshi. What's her name? Joshi. 
Yeah. So there you've got real, again, used. I'm just looking out for something real. And I remember somebody on, on your podcast saying, oh, that line didn't work for me. And I think the reason it's necessary is because, again, it's playing into this kind of real, not real dichotomy. And there she's using real, I think, to mean authentic as opposed to inauthentic. And it strikes me that one of the things that is very difficult to be in the world of Blade Runner 2049 is it's very difficult to be authentic. Mm -hmm. It's the moment at which K becomes his authentic self that he is now a danger to the system. It's the moment he starts expressing himself and his emotions that he, you know, that, they, that he's failed his baseline and he's going to be killed in 24, 48 hours or whatever, um, unless he can get his baseline sorted out again. Um, What's her name? Yeah, love. She can't be real. She can't be authentic to herself because then um, you know, she will have ceased to have be there for Mr. Wallace. As soon as she can be there for herself, um, she's no longer there for Mr. Wallace. So it strikes me that the word real is just used over and over and over again. And every time it means something different and every time it implies a different kind of opposite. So it strikes me that Blade Runner 2049 is a world in which real is very much up for grabs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think Dr. Astaline uh, sorry, Dr. Anastaline uses the word real as well, I think, when she's talking about memories. And there I think she's using the word real as the opposite to the word fake. Um, fake memories, real memories. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, as I say, I think Blade Runner 2049 is a wor world where reality itself is up for grabs because no one seems to know what reality is and no one seems to know what the, you know, there's no agreement over what it means to be real and there's no agreement over what the opposite of reality is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and as you were talking, I'm also kind of going back to our reality, which is you know the the influx of social media and social commentary and mm. all of this interaction that we're having on, um, you know, kind of the internet or whatever, and whether the, that is real, you know, whether um, and mm. whether and it's connecting us to people, but are we connecting to people? No, that's two separate mm. things. It's a connection to people, but is it a real connection to people? And I would gather that it can enhance a real connection, but it is not in and of itself a real connection. Um, so it's it's almost questions that we're at least I'm dealing with as someone who is reliant upon technology, as someone who finds com mm. my community mm. through technology because none of my friends live out here. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I kind of am searching for that too, something real, um, whether that's mm. in my own life. And so it, those are questions. Like we are all looking for something real. And, mm. and technology mm. is no substitute. And I think that's my my um, disconnect with Joy has not, nothing to do with so much what she is. <laughs> it's just that yeah. she is a facsimile of something real. She might, uh -huh. for herself, that's a whole different story. We want to talk about who she is and what mm. she does and her own needs. She knows that she's three, uh, two dimensional or flat or whatever. Um, but mm. is what she's providing in terms of being a companion for rather they're replicants, which even though they're replicants, they are real, at least three dimensional mm. living, breathing in a, in a space. Um, and whether, and I, I was thinking about, um, you know, in that conversation that you heard with Patrick and his wife and myself, mm. um, they were, mm. they were very like kind of, a lot of people think joy is the heart and soul of Blade Run 2049, which is fantastic. If people think that that's great, I, I don't. Mm. Um, but I think it also has to do with, you know, Patrick's generation was raised with technology in a way that my generation was not. So they've come mm. to accept that that is a part of real life, that technology mm. is something that's, that is tangible and real. And this is just my supposition. I don't know for sure that that's mm. what he believes, but that's what I'm, that's what I, I'm trying to understand. Um, when in fact, my belief is that it isn't real. 
that it, it, is, mm. it is not a, a, a substitute for actual human bonding in person, driving in your car, having a conversation. These things might mm. promote that a little bit, but it is in fact not real. And the more we, we, um, we settle for that, the more we are at peace with that, the more mm. I, I feel like the more it's going to invade our lives. And we're going to, we're, mm. we're going to take joy over Jane who's, who's down the hallway. We're going to take, I see what you, mean. you know, and uh, that's, that's scary to me as someone who feels like I'm, I've lost that myself. And so seeing people or hearing from people who are at peace with that frightens me. Hmm. Hmm. No, I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly why this film is so compelling because what it's doing is it's, and I think all of all good science fiction does this is it's looking five minutes into the future. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's thinking about what are the current trends? What happens if we, you know, if we just push those trends a little bit further? What kind of world do we end up in? Um, and I think, you know, my one of my favorite sci-fi authors is J.G. Ballard. And he says, you know, his big his, his gift was to be able to see five minutes into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. I mean, Joy is not a million miles away from Facebook and she's not a million miles away from Siri. And, you know, she's not a million miles away from um, the robots I've been reading about that they've been developing to work with old people mm-hmm. because, um, you know, because apparently young people don't want to spend time with old people anymore. Um, and so, yeah, so it's I think one of the things that is really, really interesting about Blade Runner is the way in which the authors seem to have a very canny sense of, of sociological trends and of technology trends. And they're building that all into um, and they're building that all into the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's 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 uh, crazy to kind of again to discuss this, and uh, uh, just because these issues are pressing in our lives, and we are, like mm. you said, it is five minutes in our future, and uh, I, I don't necessarily think. I mean, the the the, the end of um, um, you know the American society, notwithstanding, even a, an, <laughs> on on a, on a technology standpoint, like I I just like I, I was reading about. Um, this man who has a sex robot and he's married and he's, his wife is fine. Uh-huh. Wife is fine with it. And I, I don't understand fundamentally. <laughs> like I, yes. I want heart. I want emotion. I want intellect. Yes. I want philosophy. I want, I don't want like, like I just, I can't imagine like you're having sex with an, mm. an, an, an inanimate thing. At least a replicant can tell you, Hey, that was great. Or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, or it was horrible, <laughs> yes. you know? Um, and I, yeah. so this trudge towards the future of these, this technology taking place of things that with another human are really mm. beautiful, whether it's conversation or sex mm. or whatever, it's again, mm. I, 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 as much as I am a futurist, as much as I am, I, I love the idea of, of robots and androids and, uh, you mm. know, flying cars and all that things, and we're moving towards that. That's great. If we're going to lose mm. our humanity in the in the process of that, I, mm. I want it to stop in our tracks. Yes, and I think one of the things that Blade Runner twenty forty nine does really well is it shows you um, the kind of potential benefits of technology, and it shows you the way in which t- technology is incredibly troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that I really admire about the score is during the sex scene, for want of a better word, between Kay mm. and Joy and Mariette, um, the music just really gets mm-hmm. the complexity of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, that at one level, it's incredibly disturbing. And at one level, it's 
kind of everything Kay wants. And, you know, and those two things are kind of coexisting all at the same time. And I think the score really gets that. The other thing which I kind of take as a as a kind of metaphor for the technology throughout the whole of Blade Runner 2049 is the synthetic farming. Because what I was really struck with is obviously the synthetic farming is a massive boon for humanity because it means that humanity doesn't starve on Earth. But at the same time, from what we can see of it, it's incredibly toxic. Um, because when Sapper is coming out of his synthetic protein farm, he's covered in this incredibly thick rubber and metal suit, mm-hmm. and he has to hose himself down, um, and then he can you know, take the suit off and, and get back into his house. The implication being that synthetic farming is, is so toxic and corrosive that you know, the human being can survive in a synthetic farm without all of that protection. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so the synthetic farming has got those two things. It's incredibly good for humanity in this way, but it also is very, very toxic at the same time yeah. and i think that's true of all of the technology we see in blade runner and again it reflects like i don't know how many how many documentaries or whatever or short documentaries that you've seen on the meat the meat industry and you see you look into these factories mm. and it's not even the slaughterhouses mm. but just the factories and what do you see everyone in there is covered from head to toe um their mouth mm. their mouths are covered because they're using toxic chemicals to make this food. Mm. Um, mm. So it, it, it's interesting. I mean, again, the parallels, mm. like uh, we're providing you food, but it's, it could be toxic if, it, if it's not used the right yeah. way, or if you eat too much yes. of it, you're going to develop cancer and you're going to die. <laughs> yes. You know? yeah. Uh, again, it's just art reflecting life, reflecting art. Yes. Yes. And as I say, I think that's what this film does so well. It is holding a mirror up to our society um, and it's it's asking us to take a close look and, and, and you know, do we like the direction we're going in? Well, um, I could sit here and talk about this film forever. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, I'm hoping I'm going to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I will say uh, to one of your points uh, about the scene with Mariette and Joy, I thought that was interesting because there's two things going on there. Mariette isn't fake enough and Joy isn't real enough. Oh, right. <laughs> you know? Um, so how do you mean? Well, like he's in love with something that can't really physically love him back. He wants to make love with her, but he wants, she wants to make love with him, but they can't. So they hire this real girl who is, Mm. who's too real. She doesn't like, he wants a real experience with something fake. You know what I mean? I see what you mean. So he's having a real sexual experience with something that isn't real. Which is joy. Mm. I mean, uh, for, again, she might, in her own whatever, she might be real, but really, joy isn't real. Once joy's character, uh-huh. once joy's just, you know, once she was smashed in the emanator, she's gone. I don't mm. think her soul mm. goes to heaven, or it doesn't upload back into something like, um, mm. you know, uh, Battlestar Galactica, where they're they re they transmigrate back into uh, a mothership and then they come out into another uh-huh. body. That's how it happened in uh-huh. Battlestar Galactica, which is interesting. Um, but Joyce is gone. She's gone. And I'm sure there's other models, and he'd have to relearn her mm. uh, again. But mm. um, I, 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 I just again that I don't know. I, I don't really have a, a larger frame than that. Just to say that mm. Kay is experiencing something real with something fake, and something fake with something real. Like nothing's enough. Mm. Nothing's enough for us. Where we want, mm. we want a real experience, but we want a fake experience too. Even in, in our waking world today. Again, I don't mean to ramble on a little bit, but it's just one of those thoughts that I had occurring real quick. Yes, and I think that that 
even hearing you describe it, it's really quite interesting that it's really hard to, to say what about that experience is real and what about that experience is not real. And again, it's you're, you're kind of using this word real and not real to mean all kinds of different things all simultaneously. And again, I think one of the things that is really true about Blade Runner 2049 is what is real and what is not real is really up for grabs. Mm-hmm. I think the reference to Nabokov and to Pale Fire is all about that mm-hmm. because, and I would really encourage your listeners to just read the introduction to that book because you know a couple of pages in you think you know where you are and then by the you know by the time you've got the end of the introduction you know you have no idea what's going on Mm -hmm. you know there are so many different layers and so many different contradictory things pointing in different directions i think also bearing in mind that k is called k and um, the, the figure of, and I'm assuming that's a reference probably to Kafka's um, the, the castle, possibly the trial. But the interesting thing about K in the castle is that you learn almost nothing certain about that character. Mm-hmm. And the only things, everything about him is questionable and up for grabs. And it's really hard to pin down what is real and what is not real at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, maybe they went for calling him K as a kind of a nudge to the audience to say, look, you need to, you need to, you need to take nothing for granted. Everything that you think you know about this is, is questionable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the triumphs of the film. One of the triumphs of the film is there is just so much we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And therefore there are so much scope for speculation. It would have been a much worse film had they nailed half of this stuff down. Yeah. And and beautifully, they did not nail down whether T- mm. Deckard is a replicant or not. It's still up in the air. Yeah, um, and, think- and they don't nail down whether Joy is truly sentient or not. Yeah. I mean, all of those things. Are, and we don't really know what um, you know. We don't really know what love is. What what it means when love cries. Um, so all of those things are, are kind of really up in the air. And we still obviously don't know whether Deckard is a replicant or not. Yeah. And I love the fact that all of that is up in the air. And I think it. I think. The thing I admire about these filmmakers is they are treating their audience as though their audience are intelligent. Yes. Um, you know, they're, they're not talking down to us. You know, they are, they're kind of talking with us. Yeah, and it's such a, uh, uh, that in and of itself, it doesn't happen a lot. And, I, you know, that's been a bone of contention no. for me for the film industry these days, certainly just this dumbing mm. down of everything, feeling like, whereas, in, mm. in, you know, for a long, long time, the film industry was making films knowing that these people who are seeing our films are smart and intelligent people and they want to be engaged. And then film became commerce. And, be, and, mm. and because film is essentially commerce, uh, it doesn't matter if it's dumb or not. It's what matters is opening box numbers. And the fact, of course. The fact that Blade <laughs> Runner wasn't, the 2049 wasn't dumbed down, it wasn't commerce, yeah. it was a piece of art, is uh, an amazing, it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle today. Yeah. Yes. No, it really is. And um, yeah, I mean, as I as I said to Patrick, I was so anxious about what it was going to be like. Um, and at the same time, so excited. But I'm glad to say the excitement was worth it. Oh, yeah. And the anxiety was entirely misplaced. Yeah. Um, it, it was a fantastic movie. And every time I see a worthy it, sequel. Absolutely. Every time I see it, I mean, I, I call it a masterpiece, to be honest with you. I mean, there's some mm. there's some mm. discussions that I have about certain things or maybe maybe a couple of gripes here and there. But I have a couple of gripes about the original, too. But I really uh. for myself, <laughs> I, I call it a masterpiece, as I call the original. Absolutely. And I think whatever real and whatever unreal means, I think this one was a real masterpiece. Yes. yes. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on, for taking the time. Again, I just wanted to kind of pick your brain and give you some more space to really talk about this film. Um, and every time I see the film, it's like I've seen it's like the first time again. I'm just, there's not been one moment in five screenings where I've been 
oh, I'm bored or okay, I've seen this. <laughs> I mean, I might be waiting on a scene here or there, but I am transported into that world like that world exists every time. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, no, completely. It's it's an amazing film and um I have to say I want to see it again. I oh, want to yeah. see it again in a massive cinema as yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, Blu-ray's going to be great, but massive cinema beats that every yeah, time. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure to talk about Blade Runner. www.perfectorganism.com Shoulder Variety is available for listening or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Meals of Kalimba, a Blade Runner discussion group.